On a September morning in 1918, two explorers left the east coast of the United States in search of a westward path. You could think of them as a 20th century Lewis and Clark, except that the trail these explorers were blazing was in the sky. They were scouting a site for a field where planes that carried the U.S. mail could refuel and get maintenance between New York and Cleveland. The pilot, Max Miller, had previously checked out Lock Haven as a potential airfield. But he had gotten fogged in, and he could see that the frequent flooding of the west branch of the Susquehanna River was going to be a problem. Later, he and his mechanic, Henry Wacker, would make a test flight to Clarion. There, they would sink so deeply into a muddy field that dozens of locals would be needed to extract their airplane. But on that September morning, they found the ideal location. It was almost exactly midway between New York and Cleveland, and it was smack dab on the flight path, so it would require no deviation from a straight line. It was perfect, and it was right here, dead center. Hi, I'm Katie O'Toole from the Center County Historical Society. Max Miller's arrival in Center County that day put quiet rural Belfont on the national aviation map. It also inspired the first generation of Center County aviators. Miller and Wacker landed about one mile east of Belfont in a field owned by a local farmer, Thomas Beaver. And if you're wondering, no, it had nothing to do with that other beaver field down the road in State College. That one was known for touchdowns of another type. The plane landed at about 11 o'clock that morning. Miller had thought it would be a quiet affair. His plan was to meet with Belfont's postmaster, Patrick Garrity, and maybe talk discreetly with some local businessmen to gauge how much support the post office department could expect from the community should Belfont be selected as the site for a new airfield. But a century before social media, news of Miller's arrival had gone viral. Hundreds of spectators mobbed the field to see the Birdmen. That's what they called those early aviators. Curious Center Countyans, most of whom had never seen an aircraft, swarmed Miller's plane, even before it had rolled to a complete stop on the low-cut grass. They wanted to shake hands with Miller and Wacker and to touch the magnificent flying machine. And they admired the post office mail pouches painted on each side of the fuselage. Among the crowd that day, there were almost certainly a few of the six hind siblings, four boys and two girls. I think they, they got interested because of the uh, first field being only a mile and a half from their little farm where they lived. So the airplanes flew right over their farm coming in out of the, from the east, coming in and landed going towards the west. That's 89-year-old Bob Hines. He's a pilot and the second generation of Hines to fall in love with flying. I always had an interest in my sister and I, really, on our bicycles on Sundays. We would ride from our home out to the Belfont Airport on Sunday afternoons and watch airplanes come and go. Part of what spurred his interest in flight were the stories he heard at the knees of his uncles, stories that go back to the infancy of local aviation, to when Max Miller recommended Belfont as the perfect site for an airmail stop. His uncle Ellis was the oldest of the Hines children and likely influenced his younger siblings. 
I know the Uncle Ellis who came out of the Navy in World War One with an aviation mechanic license, and he was the first mechanic hired at Belfont. So it became a natural thing. Everybody had a very keen interest in, in airplanes because it was this different. Everybody in the family did, made a lot of visits to that airport. I mean, my uncle living working there, then my dad getting a job there later on. It was all all became kind of a part of the family, you know, is what it did. Heinz's dad, Lawrence, eventually worked for the radio service at the airfield. Later, he began taking flying lessons when he was working for a flight service in College Park, Maryland. But he was killed in a car crash when Bob was just a year old. So most of the stories that Bob heard as a child came from his uncles, especially his uncle Dan, the youngest of the Heinz brothers. He went into the... Uh, Air Force in the Second World War was not a pilot. When he got out on the GI Bill, he took uh, pilot lessons at Belfont. And so he was a pilot. He didn't own an airplane, but he, was, he flew. He flew and he wrote. In fact, he would later devote some 30 years of his life to writing a book on those early airmail pilots and collecting logbooks and other artifacts from the early days. Dan Hines' manuscript is based on his own encounters with the airmail pilots and their families, and the stories he heard from his older brothers. My dad was known as an airport bum, he and my uncle Dan. They'd go out to the airport, and if an airplane would come in, they'd go over and ask where they were going, and if they had an empty seat, could I ride along with you? And they'd say, yeah, jump in. So that's what my dad did with Eddie Rickenbacker. Yes, the Eddie Rickenbacker the World War I flying ace who notched more aerial victories against the Germans than any other American pilot. He flew from Belfont to College Park, Maryland, and then hitchhiked home. If you were an airport bum like those Heinz brothers, you ran into people like Rickenbacker and other prominent pilots. Lindbergh, he didn't like having anybody around him. He was a very private person. So if he would fly into Belfont, of course, the people knew he was coming. They'd all come to the airport, watch for him. He'd fly over and see all these cars down there. He'd keep on. He wouldn't land. So then they would announce, well, looks like Lindbergh's going to be going to Clarion for his fuel today. Won't be landing. So everybody would leave. Lindbergh would circle around, wait till they left, then he'd come back and land. That's what he did. One night, he had a flat tire. My uncle fixed it. And Lindbergh sent a letter to the postmaster general. Uh, because he thought that my uncle did a good job, and they recognized him for that. Most of the pilots from that early era are no longer household names. But for a period of nine years, the airmail pilots were like matinee idols in Belfont. They were dashing, high-spirited, and courageous to a fault, partly because they had earned their wings on the battlefield. These pilots, most of them were, were military pilots, all of them, as a matter of fact. And they come out of the service. While they were in the service, you know, they didn't get any cross-country training because they didn't have the instruments and they didn't have the airfields. So they, you know, they flew across enemy lines 25 miles or so and turned and came back. And that's, that's the only way they could do it. So they were brave. They were resourceful but they had no experience in long-distance flying. Once discharged from the military, they became part of a civilian airmail service created by the U.S. Post Office. 
President Woodrow Wilson was committed to moving the mail by air, and so was his postmaster general, Otto Prager. It wasn't a universally popular idea because critics thought that pilots and aircraft were needed more urgently by the military. But the First World War was winding down, and Wilson was gearing up for airmen. The idea was that the government would subsidize the aerial service until it was well enough established for commercial operators to take over. As it turned out, that happened by 1927, which is why Belfont's first age of aviation lasted just nine years. Earlier in 1918, the post office established an airmail route between New York City and Washington, D.C. But both Wilson and Postmaster Prager had a grander vision. They dreamed of a transcontinental service to be created one leg at a time. The plan was for the first leg to extend from an airfield in either New York or New Jersey to Chicago by way of Cleveland. It was along this path that Belfont became the first scheduled stop on the U.S. westward route and the only scheduled stop in Pennsylvania where pilots could refuel, get mechanical help, find a warm bed and a hot cup of coffee. Let me emphasize scheduled because in the early days there were almost as many unscheduled landings. The pilots had no radio communication with the ground, so often they had to land just to figure out where they were. And uh, these guys, again, coming out of the service, had very little experience in that kind of flying. So they did it by the seat of their pants. They had uh, certain areas that they knew coming into Sunbury, Pennsylvania, for example. They knew about a couple rivers that joined there. They knew about that. So they'd, they'd look for certain things en route to where they were going to go. Railroad tracks, railroads, did all that. That sort of visual reference worked fine on a clear day, but when they encountered heavy fog or clouds, they had only their compasses to guide them. And if you know anything about Center County history... You know, there's a lot of iron deposits in those mountains, and that threw the compass off. And that was their primary instrument, was a compass. They didn't have any other kind of instruments as airplanes. If we're in the fog, they had to guess. They knew how long it would take to fly from New Jersey to Belfont, for example. So if they were in the fog, which they were many times, they would gauge the trip by the, how, much, how much time it took. But sometimes their clocks or watches failed, and then they had to be even more resourceful in figuring out when it was time to dip below the clouds for a landing. One pilot, James Hill, devised his own method. He was a cigar smoker who measured time by how long it took him to smoke his stogie. He would light a cigar when he left the field in New Jersey, and he figured when he got down, this that much left. Hines is gesturing here to indicate an inch-long stub of a cigar. He went down through the fog and looked for Belfont. He did that. I heard that many times. Now, I'm a pilot, and when I learned to fly in the 1970s, I remember my instructor, Ron Kotner, taking me into the clouds and deliberately disorienting me. He was testing my ability to fly by using the instruments that could tell me whether I was climbing, diving, banking, or flying upside down. What I learned is that one's senses are not to be trusted. You might think that gravity would tell you what is up and down, but you'd be wrong. In a thick soup, you lose all sense of direction. So the idea of flying blind with no instruments for guidance other than unreliable compasses 
is terrifying. Yet that's what these early pilots signed up for. When Postmaster Preger began the civilian-operated air service in 1918, he warned all pilot applicants in a written statement, quote, The aerial mail service will be operated daily, regardless of weather conditions, and only aviators who will agree to fly under such circumstances can be utilized, end quote. That directive was later modified to allow pilots to use their own judgment. But as you might suspect, the more faint-hearted aviators were weeded out. Max Miller was one of the first to apply. Soon after came Slim Lewis, one of the most popular of the airmail pilots in Belfont. It was said that nobody could fly like Slim Lewis. He scoffed at the dangers of flying blind. He would grumble about the safety features that eventually made their way onto the instrument panel. He claimed they just cluttered up the cockpit and distracted the pilot. When Lewis found himself in a billowy mass of clouds, he would do what Miller did, stay as still as possible, and determine whether his wings were level and the nose of the plane was down by the way the wind hit his cheeks and by the sound of the wing struts. Most pilots were not able to trust the feel and sound of the wind, so they devised other ways to keep their planes level when the ground and horizon disappeared. One pilot attached a flat-backed, half-empty whiskey bottle to his instrument board and monitored the sloshing of the alcohol. Another tied a walnut to a string and used it as a plumb bob to provide a vertical reference line. It took all the resourcefulness they could muster in those early years. You get up 1,000, 1,500 feet, and you're in the soup. And what do you do? You know, you look at your compass, keep your wings level, and fly west which is what they did. But it was really seat-of-the-pants flying is what it was. And those guys were good. There was a lot, of, a lot of fatalities, but a lot of them did it, did it very well. The route that the pilots flew from the East Coast to Chicago was known as the Woodrow Wilson Airway, in honor of the president's support for airmail services. But the pilots themselves? They had another name for it. They called it Hell's Stretch. Hell's Stretch is the Allegheny Mountain Range between New Jersey and Ohio Line. That's the Hell's Stretch across there. That's where a lot of the airplanes went down because they were flying into conditions that they should have not been flying into. So they, they, they hit these, you know, the Allegheny Mountain Range, Hell's Stretch. A lot of them went in there, you know. And they went in there because they were flying too low. Uh, they didn't really know where they were, or they had engine problems, a number of things, but there was a lot of them because it was a very dangerous thing back then to f try and fly from New York to Cleveland, Chicago, and airplanes were not equipped to do that. Pilots were not trained to do it, so they took chances. They just flew to the seat of their pants, you know. From the air, the Alleghenies might look like gentle ridges of forested slopes. They don't have the dramatic peaks and crags or the towering elevations that mark the Rockies or the Sierra Nevadas. But they're deceptive that way. They fooled the pioneers who went west in their Conestoga wagons, and they bedeviled the airmail pioneers a century later. Every hazard those birdmen could encounter was lurking in the Alleghenies. Hard-to-read terrain, thick fogs that hid the narrow valleys and sloping hillsides, sudden weather changes, and worst of all, no level clearings. 
If a pilot ran out of fuel or developed engine problems, he'd be hard-pressed to find a straight road or a decent patch of grass along Hell's Stretch for an emergency landing. And with no radio contact, he had nobody to ask for help or advice. In the early years, the pilot did not wear a parachute, so when mechanical problems arose, he had to think fast. Bob Hines heard plenty of those stories from his Uncle Dan. I I know uh, he told me one time about uh, one pilot that was flying, I think, over Sunbury, and he lost control of the airplane because the pin that held his stick in fell out on the floor. So he couldn't find it, so he put his pencil through that hole to hold the stick and flew it to Belfont like that. Knowing that they were expected to fly through anything, the airmail pilots also had to consider their wardrobe. The plane models used by the post office department, the Standard, the de Havilland, the Curtis JNs or Jennies. These were biplanes with open cockpits, so the pilots would be a thousand feet up and often exposed to truly treacherous weather. It was said that Slim Lewis hated the heat of a hot summer day most of all, and that he would sometimes fly in nothing but his underwear and goggles. But more often, the pilots needed to protect themselves from frigid temperatures. On a really cold day... The clothing they had to put on, uh, the pilot before he flew, they had so many layers of clothes on that the pilot could not get in the airplane on his own. They had to pick them up and set them in a cockpit. That's how they did it. They had two or three pair of gloves on, They had newspapers wrapped around their body, uh, all kinds of tricks to keep out the cold. Extremely cold weather also took a toll on the aircraft. Engines would take longer to start, and the oil stored in the hangar would turn to a gel. The office at the Belfont Airport was heated by a potbelly stove, so when a plane came in to refuel on a cold day... So they'd take a bucket of the oil in, put it on top of the potbelly stove, and get it hot. And then they'd run outside real quick, dump it in the engine, put the pilot in, hand crank it, and get it going. That's how, that's how they did it. Sometimes it took three guys holding hand to hand to pull the prop through. That's how they got into the air. Getting out of the air didn't always go so smoothly. But when forced into an emergency landing, if a pilot was able to walk away from the crash, he often had one thought on his mind getting the mail delivered from the crash site to its destination. And something the airmail pilots carried with them helped them to get that job done, while adding to their near-mythic status. And back then, you know, each one of the personnel that worked for the airmail service, and if you were sold, they had a round badge, about as big around, had U.S. airmail on it, okay? That gave them a right to stop a train. So if they crashed, made a crash landing off the field, and didn't get injured, and there's a railroad close by, they would pick up the mailbag, get down along the railroad tracks, and stop the train, and jump on the train and fly to the next station. And I, I had my uncle's badge. That gave them the right to do that. They could stop a train, put the mail on it, which they did many times. It's clear from the risks they took each day that these pilots were dedicated to delivering the mail. They took their job seriously, Yet their reputation as fearless adventurers probably came in part from their antics around Belfont. Some stunts were scheduled, such as the aerobatics that took place in June of 1919, at an event to welcome home the returning war veterans. 
Three of the airmail pilots held spectators spellbound with their loops, rolls, and spin maneuvers. Other stunts were more spontaneous, such as when the pilot known as Wild Bill Hobson buzzed the baseball diamond at Belfont Academy, forcing players on the field to hit the ground. Headmaster James Hughes was furious, but the spectators loved the hair-raising entertainment, and even the baseball players conceded that it brought some good excitement to the game. Slim Lewis liked to fly low over the county courthouse to make the trout weather vane on top spin like crazy in his prop wash. And Slim Lewis did that on a regular basis. Uh, he, he was a very, very good pilot, and he, he loved to buzz the courthouse. And back in those days, of course, there was no FAA, so there was really no restrictions on what you could do, how low you could fly, or, you know, there wasn't any. With no regulations, the airmail pilots were bound only by their nerve. In 1920, Wild Bill Hobson found himself in Belfont one day without an airplane. Another pilot by the name of Robinson had been given orders to fly the mail east that day, meaning Hobson would have to wait until another airmail pilot arrived to get a plane. But there was a problem. Hobson couldn't wait. Local lore has it that he had a date that night in New York City. Hobson asked Robinson for a lift. But there was another problem. There was no room for him in the cockpit. One seat was occupied by Robinson, and the other was filled with 400 pounds of mail. But Hobson had an idea. It was in the summer. He went in the hangar and put on a winter flying suit, which is where they kept those. And he came out, and, and they strapped him on the left wing of the airplane because he had a date in New York City. And he told the field manager, see you, Jake, I'm going to New York, my date. And they took off. He flew on that wing, strapped on a wing, all the way back to New York. Yeah. 200 miles on the wing of a plane. For Wild Bill, no problem. Such daredevil capers fed into the aura that surrounded the airmail pilots and made them the object of some hero worship around town. Although none of the airmail pilots was from Center County, they were welcomed to the community and treated as warmly as any native son. The pilots who didn't room at the Brockerhof often boarded with local families. They socialized at the Nittany Country Club in Mingoville. They dated Center County's young women. And they entertained many a dinner party with their tales of daring do. Belfont's affection for its intrepid airmail pilots ran deep. So when tragedy struck, the locals mourned the loss as if it were one of their own. And in the early era of flight, tragedy was inevitable. In fact, in 1920 alone, one out of every six airmail pilots died in a crash. One of them was Fred Robinson, the pilot who had carried Wild Bill on his wing. He crashed and died in a heavy fog and rain en route to Belfont. He had been flying low to use the Susquehanna River as a visual reference when his landing gear got tangled with a telephone cable, flipping the plane into the air and upside down into the river. Just shy of his 24th birthday, Robinson had been dating a Belfont woman, Sarah Longwell, and they were expected to be married. Wild Bill Hobson himself died along Hell's Stretch in 1928. On a rainy day with poor visibility, he crashed and burned in a heavily forested area near the town of Polk, 
about halfway between Clarion and the Ohio State line. Max Miller, the pilot who had recommended Belfont's selection as an airmail hub, survived at least eight plane crashes. Then in 1920, his plane exploded after takeoff in New Jersey with a load of mail bound for Belfont. The editor of the local newspaper wrote that the town, quote, feels a peculiar sorrow in the tragic death of aviator Max Miller. He was not a resident, but his transient life here has given many the opportunity to know him and like him, and we think we are telling what was in his heart when we say he liked Belfont, end quote. Miller was just 27 years old, barely older than powered flight itself. There's a well-known saying among aviators, there are old pilots and there are bold pilots, but there are no old, bold pilots. Yet one of the most beloved pilots of the airmail era lived to be just that, Slim Lewis, who delighted in spinning the weather vane on the courthouse and buzzing Tom Beaver's cows, had his share of close calls. It came with his reputation for being able to fly through anything and land a plane under any circumstance. Bob Hines remembers hearing about the time Slim Lewis flew into Belfont on a snowy day. The planes had skis on them in the wintertime, but one of Lewis's skis had twisted itself into an upright position. So he circled the airfield, trying to get the attention of the ground crew to let them see what had happened. So when he landed, he flew all over the field, and he, the personnel came out to see him, and he pointed down to his ski like this, pointed down like this. So when he came in to land, then he banked it real hard down him, hit the end of that skin, that ski came down, flopped on the snow, and he landed it. That's how he did it. Lewis was the stuff of legends. He competed in and often won speed competitions. He was a master of aerobatics and would pull out of a tailspin over Belfont just in the nick of time. He loved to buzz his buddies at the Brockerhof or fly into the country club for a round of golf. He was rumored to be a hard drinker, even through the Prohibition era, but he managed to maintain his precision flying, even if the bottle was right next to the throttle. Lewis went on to become the chief pilot for United Airlines' Western Division. When he retired to a ranch in Cheyenne, Wyoming, in 1947, he said it was because all the dials and gauges in the cockpit had made the seat of his pants just a piece of cloth. For Slim Lewis, the joy of flying was gone. So he became a cattle rancher. By the time the post office turned over its airmail service to commercial operators, the path first blazed by Max Miller extended all the way across the continent. Night flying had become routine. Monoplanes with a single wing and an enclosed cockpit made flying more comfortable. Pilots wore parachutes for emergency escapes. And they formed the Caterpillar Club, whose members had each parachuted out of a doomed airplane and lived to talk about it. Henry Wacker, the mechanic on Max Miller's inaugural flight into Belfont, was an early member of the Caterpillar Club. So was Charles Lindbergh. Many of the pilots who survived the airmail era went on to fly for the emerging commercial airlines, Pan American, Transworld Airlines, or TWA, United Continental, and Eastern Airlines. After 1927, Belfont was no longer on the map of national aviation. 
but its brush with those airmail pioneers influenced the next generation of local aviators, people like Sherm Lutz. He would be the link between the barnstorming era and modern aviation, right here, dead center. Sherm Lutz is the focus of the current exhibition at the Center County Historical Society and the topic of our next podcast. This podcast drew upon the Daniel Hines collection at the American Philatelic Society, the Center County Historical Society's collection, Kathleen Wonderly's book, Belfont in the Early Airmail Service, 1918 to 1927, and the memories of Bob Hines, bequeathed to him by Belfont's first family of early aviation. The theme music is titled Coffee Shop. It was composed by David Zeste, and it's licensed by Creative Commons. Mm-hmm.